Lost somewhat in the immediate aftermath of the midterms, do you really know what's changed in the Texas legislature? We'll get up to speed today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick may have held on to his partisan supermajority, but he may have a tougher fight over issues related to social conservatism. Two state lawmakers, a Democrat and a Republican, offer a reality check. Also a gut check when it comes to probiotics. They're all the rage, promising better health. But a Texas researcher raises serious new questions. And did the Lone Star State shut down the world's biggest marketplace for human trafficking? A PolitiFact check and more today on the Texas Standard. It's Texas Standard Time on this Thursday, November 8th. I'm David Brown, and in the hours since the midterms, a new narrative has emerged. Republicans are the party of rural America. Cities and the suburbs belong to the Democrats. As a course guide to political life, this might have some utility, like the red state-blue state divide. It's an easy caricature if you're thinking about, say, where a candidate might be vulnerable and where you might be most effective in winning votes, or if you're a pollster trying to make broad assumptions to weight your survey. But the danger, of course, in seeing the world through such glasses is that they are filters for the other. It becomes harder to see those with whom we politically disagree as people instead of political actors. The greater concern, of course, would be if that's what we've primarily become, political. In 2004, a journalist from Texas named Bill Bishop coined the term the big sort, suggesting that we are sorting ourselves into largely homogenous communities, not just red state and blue, but right down to our neighborhoods, leading to a kind of cultural inbreeding that makes it impossible to understand those who aren't part of our own community and easier to demonize. Again, that was 2004. And the outcome of the 28 midterms, while some might suggest has pushed Texas toward purple, doesn't look that way closer to the ground, closer to real life. To the contrary, we see reinforcements of our own selves, and when we don't, we go to a place that does. After the 2018 midterms, both sides, commentators tell us, have something to celebrate. But you know, perhaps it's also an opportunity to ask ourselves what exactly we are celebrating, and whether we are in charge of our political lives or whether politics now controls us. Let's turn to the Texas legislature where Tarrant County appears to be witnessing political migration of some sort. Joining us now is Texas House Representative Chris Turner of District 101 in Tarrant County. He's also the chair of the Texas House Democratic Caucus. Thanks for coming on the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think a lot of people had their eyes on Tarrant County and uh, what seemed to be a, a, a political change, perhaps a sea change, some might suggest. Uh, uh, would you would you say that you're seeing that sort of political change there? Well, absolutely. We had a huge night in Tarrant County Tuesday. One of the highest profile races in the state was the Senate District 10 mm-hmm. uh, race. Uh, and this this is a district that is a swing district. It's been represented by Democrats and Republicans over the last uh, 20 years. But uh, Democrats won big uh, in Senate District 10 Tuesday night. Uh, and I'm so excited that my friend Beverly Powell is going to be the next senator from SD10, uh, who's going to be a great champion for public education. And, and for jobs. And she won that election with bipartisan support. And that's what that's, that district wants is a bipartisan senator. In addition to that, uh, we were thrilled, obviously, that uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, carried Tarrant County, uh, something a Democrat has not done. Uh, I 
I think, since the early 1990s mm-hmm. or mid-1990s. Let, let, let's pull back just a moment, though, from Tarrant County, because as big as that was, you look at statewide, 12 Texas House pickups by Democrats in the midterm. What, what will you be able to do with those gains? Because Democrats still won't have a majority in the Texas House. Well, uh, d- Democrats have been able to do a lot, only having 55 members in the Texas House. So uh, I-, I can't wait to see what we're going to do with 67 members in the Texas House. The, the reality is is that the House is now very evenly divided, um, and-, and neither party is going to be able to do whatever it wants uh, all the time. Uh, people are going to have to work together on a bipartisan basis and address the real issues people care about. Democrats are serious about focusing on helping our public schools, increasing access to health care for, for all Texas families, mm-hmm. and creating a strong uh, uh, economic and jobs environment. Uh, we want to work with our Republican colleagues on, on those issues, and uh, we need to spend our time on that and our energy on that, not on things like bathroom bills uh, and and new attacks on women's health care and divisive immigration rhetoric. I want to get back to issues like bathroom bills and that kind of thing, but uh, just focused on the House for the moment. Of course, there's going to be a race for House Speaker now that Joe Strauss has uh, announced he's uh, stepping uh, aside. Do you see the the new Democrat plurality, uh, uh, stronger as you're describing it, influencing that race for House Speaker at all? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Democrats are going to be central to the uh, election of, of the next speaker. The next speaker is only going to be elected uh, with strong bipartisan support. So there's going to be some horse trading, it sounds like. Well, I don't know that I would call it horse trading. I think that um, you know Democrats are interested in having a speaker who will work with all members of the House to uh, see that members can represent their districts, that the House is run and operated fairly, and that, again, we focus on the on the real issues facing Texas, uh, and, and public education is, is job one. I want to get back to that bathroom bill. Dan Patrick, lieutenant governor, reelected uh, with a rather comfortable margin and still a supermajority there. What, uh, what, that, what will that do to uh, your ambitions uh, as a Democrat? Well, I, I think I think Dan Patrick had a bad night. Actually, uh, he he uh, performed uh, far below uh, what Governor Abbott received. Um, clearly, there's uh, dissatisfaction with uh, Dan Patrick's performance as Lieutenant Governor, and um, and he lost two state Senate seats. Uh, Dan Patrick campaigned hard for Connie Burton and for uh, Don Huffines, mm-hmm. uh, and both of them lost. So I I, I viewed as a terrible night for Dan Patrick, and he also lost a lot of his. Uh, allies in the Texas House, like Matthew Rinaldi. I think that, that what we saw Tuesday is that Texans are rejecting um, and putting the brakes on Dan Patrick's extreme agenda, bathroom bills, and other nonsense. Uh, and and they, sent a, they sent a message that they that's why they're electing more Democrats to the House and the Senate, because they want uh, leaders who are going to focus on the issues that matter. Chris Turner is State Representative of Texas House District 101 in Tarrant County. Representative Turner, Thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. You bet. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, let's move a little bit east now. Texas House District 134 is located in Harris County, and it is represented by Sarah Davis, a Republican who just won a fifth term on Tuesday. Congratulations, Representative Davis. Thanks for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Well, thank you, and it is my pleasure. We were just talking with Chris Turner, your Democratic colleague from District 101, and he said... By dint of greater numbers alone, you know, uh, Democrats picked up 12 seats. They're going to have more of a say in the selection of a new House Speaker uh, in that still majority Republican chamber. You think he's right? 
I think he's absolutely right. I think picking up 12, um, and it may be 11, um, I think that Representative Schofield has yet to concede, Mm. but picking up that many seats, whether it's 11 or 12, definitely changes the landscape. Um, in the speaker's race. For so, sure. so what is, uh, how do you uh, come together on a House speaker? I, I, I said, well, so there's going to be some horse trading here, or is there some common ground between Democrats and Republicans on the House side? Well, that's a really good question. And a lot of us are really grappling with it because for the majority of the House members, this is the first time that we've ever experienced what we would call an open speaker's race. Um, you know, most of us have come in when Joe was the speaker. Um, obviously, there's exceptions, but the vast majority of us have never gone through um, a race like this. Within the Republican caucus, uh, we did change the bylaws to create a process in which um, we elect the speaker from the caucus. Um, so on December 1st, I believe, the Republican caucus is set to meet mm-hmm. and proceed with the process of electing a speaker from the caucus. Um, how that will work and or if that will work remains to be seen, um, especially in light of the fact that, of course, the Democrats made such um, such gains. So uh, I, I have to ask you about the political dynamics here, because as we were discussing earlier, Democrats flipped 11 or 12, depending on how that turns out, uh, seats in the House. Uh, many of those in and around Houston, what do you think is going on? Well, what I think is going on is for far too long, at least in the last two or three um, legislative cycles, state leadership has really been governing on issues that don't affect everyday Texans. I mean, the last legislative session, we uh, were forced to spend more time talking about where people go to the bathroom uh, than what's going on in our classrooms. We really should be focusing on things like public education finance and infrastructure and the Medicaid program, uh, shoring that up. But instead, uh, we tend to uh, have focused on really what I would call wedge issues or more social issues like abortion. Um, vaccines became controversial mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden and any good positive pro-vaccine reforms um, were not able to be advanced. And so we've just, uh, we've not been governing um, on issues that affect average Texans you know, and that are common sense issues. Joe, and, and because of that, I think the the, predict, the election cycle was pretty predictable. It was know, just a matter of time. Joe Strauss, the, the outgoing House Speaker, told uh, Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune uh, that uh, he thinks that the Republican Party in Texas is going one way as Texas itself is going another. What do you think? Um, I tend to agree with the speaker on that um, because the state of Texas wants, you know, we want to keep economic uh, growth going. We want our economy to be strong. We want good public schools and we don't want people, uh, our legislators, to spend all their time uh, being potty police and, you know, other social issues. Those are not the things that affect Texans everyday lives. So I think Texans are tired of the legislature uh, convening and not talking about things that are important to the average Texan. Sarah Davis, she is a Republican who represents House District 134 in Harris County. Representative Davis, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. It is my pleasure. Thank you.
Joining us once again in the studio, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. We're still mulling over the midterms, and public radio fans on social media are as well. Here's what some folks are saying on Facebook. Joshua Dumont points out those Democratic wins in Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, and El Paso, plus some border counties, big cities, and the border, he calls it. He adds, Texas could swing blue in 10 years if the Democrats can win farmers and ranchers. Meanwhile, Matthew Basile also notes Democrats increasing lock on those big cities and says, I'm really hoping Democrats start laying out what they're going to do for rural Texans beyond health care and education. Those things mean a lot to me, but I want to see a Democratic candidate that really bridges the divide. Well, that's just some of the discussion out there. There's a lot more going on on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, where we are also hearing from folks about some news at the federal level. I'm sure you've heard about this one. Jeff mm-hmm. Sessions forced resignation as attorney general. Yeah. And I'll be back with reactions to that news later in the show. You didn't mention uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, did you? No, yeah, had that fall. Broke three ribs, it's yeah, my understanding. Apparently yeah, apparently been admitted to a hospital. These are a lot of stories we're covering. We'd love to know what's making news in your neck of Texas. Reach out to us, won't you? At Texas Standard, join the conversation on Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Wells Dunbar is monitoring the talk of Texas. He'll be back in 35 minutes here on The Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us on this Thursday. Last week, President Trump said his administration is no longer releasing migrants from custody. We're going to catch, he said. We're not going to release. But that's not what we're hearing about what's happening along the southwest border right now. The number of migrant families apprehended there by immigration agents reaching record numbers. And so as of a few weeks ago, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement began releasing hundreds of families from custody. Mallory Falk of KRWG in Las Cruces tells us that's putting a strain on nonprofits and communities all along the border. About 40 minutes from El Paso at the Holy Cross Retreat Center in Mesilla Park, New Mexico, volunteers line up to greet a bus of migrant families being dropped off by ICE. About 20 parents and children step off the bus. A volunteer named Orlando Carrillo Jimenez ushers them into the retreat center. Woo! All right. Jimenez welcomes them to the United States and explains what's about to happen. First, dinner. La comida, vamos a comer aquí, muy bien. Nada de burritos, eh? <laughs> Next, medical evaluations. Then, volunteers will help them make travel arrangements so they can get to their final destinations, usually with relatives in other parts of the country. Jimenez has done this nearly every week for the past two years, when Holy Cross started taking in migrant families. In the past, along this part of the border, immigration officials would either help families arrange transportation to relatives around the U.S. or bring them to a so-called hospitality center, like Holy Cross. If those centers didn't have enough space, some migrants remained in custody until there was more room. Two things changed in recent weeks. Officials aren't helping families with travel plans, and they're releasing large numbers of families, regardless of whether shelters and churches have the space to accommodate them. ICE recently dropped around 100 immigrants at a Greyhound station in downtown El Paso with no advance notice. Ruben Garcia runs the city's main immigrant shelter, Annunciation House. He hurried over to meet them. 
Can we cross? Garcia quickly arranged for a nearby church to house the families and walked them there himself. Annunciation House is working with local officials to find more housing and volunteers. I think it's unconscionable. State Senator Jose Rodriguez represents El Paso. Now they're just simply dumping them here in the border communities like El Paso and expecting the community to provide the support services. Annunciation House is renting out 70 motel rooms, and the Catholic Diocese of El Paso set up an emergency shelter with dozens of cots. In a statement, an ICE spokesperson said, quote, Family units continue to cross the border at high volumes as they face no consequence for their actions, unquote. With legal limits on how long families can be held in detention, ICE said it no longer has the capacity to review travel plans. But Rodriguez suspects these sudden releases are a political ploy to create a sense of chaos on the border. Back at Holy Cross Retreat Center, the scene is controlled chaos. Orlando Jimenez tries to figure out how to get a Guatemalan father and child to their sponsor in South Carolina. He calls up the sponsor on a cell phone and a bus company on a landline, all while looking up airfares and tossing the father pumpkin candies for his kid. He takes a moment to reflect. You know, this is not fake news, quote-unquote, and that's the only political statement I'm going to make. These are real people's lives. This is not a caravan. These are actual, real people that need our help. With limited resources and already stretched thin, advocates are scrambling to make sure families don't simply end up on the street. For the Texas Standard, I'm Mallory Falk in Mesilla Park, New Mexico. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. If you're shopping for a new house, or even if you're just curious about what the market thinks your current home is worth, you might have used Zillow to check out prices. Our tech expert Omar Gayaga tells us that Zillow and a competitor Redfin have gone beyond providing the apps and the maps and the specs and the numbers. They're getting into the real estate business themselves. Hey there, Omar. Hey, David. So tell us a little bit about Zillow and Redfin. For those who haven't used the apps, how have they been making money up until now? Well, Zillow and Redfin are both Seattle-based companies that provide real estate listings. And a lot of their business is also kind of hooking up customers who want to buy a house with real estate agents. That's a lot of their business's referrals of kind of getting you set up with everything you need to buy a house or or sell a house. Uh, But lately, uh, last year, they announced that they were going to start getting into the actual home buying and selling business. And Mm -hmm. Redfin is doing this as well. So not only are you going to be seeing on, on these sites you know, just the listings and the photos and all the specs of a house, you might actually be buying a home directly from these companies. Very interesting. You know, it's this business of iBuyers, I guess you could call them, it's not entirely new. I was reading a story in the Houston Chronicle talking about uh, a couple that wanted to sell their house. They went on one of these apps and they found that it would be worth between two hundred fifty and two hundred sixty thousand dollars And so they figured, huh, maybe I'll just see if one of these iBuyers might, you know, what what they would offer for it. And in this case, it was Open Door, which is a San Francisco company that's doing something similar. And they were offered something like $256,000 right there in that range, right? Right, sweet spot. But the backside of it was that the, 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 uh, what do you call it, Uh, the premium for selling the house, how much the, the, you know, sellers had to pay was about 10%. And I think normally in Texas, that's around six, right? 
Yeah, yeah. For the for the ATMs. so there's a lot of money to be made in this in this market space if in fact these apps are successful. There is some wiggle room, and also uh, what you have is that these companies are sort of doing this right when the real estate market is softening a bit. You're actually seeing things slow down and interest rates kind of creep up. So actually, Zillow this just this week had a kind of a bruising quarter where they they uh, lost a quarter of their value on Wall Street. But they're, this is a long term play. They're starting very slow. They're only uh, buying and selling a few hundred houses right now. Uh, but they're hoping that this is kind of a long term play and that they'll become major players in real estate. It seems like a lot of these players in real estate online, Zillow and Redfin, as, as we're focusing on here, uh, that Houston seems to be an especially attractive market. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that That's kind of where we first heard about this, is that even though they announced this a year ago, they're just now starting to creep into some of these markets, and, and Houston is definitely one of them. And I think what Zillow is, is trying to do is, you know, buy right now when things are a little bit soft, when, mm -hmm. the, when the market is slowing down a bit, and, you know, kind of turn these properties around within 90 days. And, and kind of, even if it's just a small profits, even if it's just a few, you know, $10,000 here and there, I mean, I think they're just slowly starting to build this business and, and kind of get established in it. You know, I wonder, though, I mean, it seems to me that this could have some serious repercussions. I mean, you think about people who are realtors themselves, for example. They're not going to like this too much. I mean, having their space invaded by, uh, by uh, an app on, on a phone because of the convenience factor alone. Uh, it kind of cuts both ways because yeah, it is competitive, but then also the a lot of the business that Zillow does is referring people to real estate agents. So, uh, you know, and to mortgage companies. So they're getting a lot of business through that. And I mean, I, you know, when I bought a house recently, I started my search on places like Zillow, but I eventually had to get, you know, a real estate agent and I found them through one of these sites. And you find that in the real estate business, all of that stuff is kind of speeding up and consolidating. You've got tools like rocket mortgages that are meant to kind of simplify the process. So you're seeing sort of all of the things that we're seeing, uh, you know, cloud stuff and internet stuff and apps starts to slowly work their way into the real estate market, which has been traditionally a little bit behind the times. Wow. You know, we knew that the real estate market was going online, but it seems like it's really accelerating with these advances by Zillow and Redfin, and especially in the Houston marketplace. You know, you can find our own go-to digital guru at his home online, techminutetexas.com. Mr. Omar Gallago, we will see you next week. Yes, good talking to you, David. Good talking with you. Coming up on 29 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Texas Roundup is just around the corner. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas pecan harvests were below average the last two years, but things were looking up in 2018. Growers were poised to rake in a 50 million pound haul of pecans after above average rains leading into the fall kept trees healthy. But the native Texas nut may have gotten too much of a good thing as recent rains caused flooding at orchards throughout the state. Larry Stein with the Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Extension Center says he expects the harsh weather to affect how much is harvested. Not only that, but a lot of nuts were washed away from the floods. Stein says they won't know the exact impact until next month, but he says not to worry in the meantime, there's plenty of pecans for Texas consumers. 
Construction on a Leadership Institute for Texas Educators is underway. Earlier this year, HEB Chairman and CEO Charles Butt pledged more than $100 million to launch the Holdsworth Center. He broke ground on the project in Austin a week ago today. Kate Rogers is president of the Holdsworth Center. She explains the work of their nonprofit is focused on grooming current and future leaders in the public school system. And that's really the mission of the Holdsworth Center is to help, you know, really provide a stellar education to all 5.3 million children in Texas by making sure that every teacher has the opportunity to work under an inspired leader on the campus levels. And how exactly will this group achieve that? We work with school districts from around the state of Texas over about a five-year period, really focusing on their entire approach to talent management, helping them build the leadership pipeline. Even though the Austin campus won't open its doors until 2020, the Holdsworth Center is already working with school districts that applied for programs. Rogers says the first cohort of their campus leadership program has 163 participants. One of our big theories is that, you know, really change on a campus or within a district is not dependent upon one superhero leader. It's usually done by teams of people working cooperatively. In total, they're already working with seven districts, including Arlington ISD, Klein ISD, and Round Rock ISD. They're in the process of selecting another six districts for the summer of 2019. In the battle royale that was the 2018 midterm elections, one newcomer to the Texas state Senate already has a claim to fame. Democrat Nathan Johnson, who defeated GOP state Senator Don Huffines of Dallas to represent Texas Senate District 16, was once a composer for the hit anime series Dragon Ball Z. To be clear, that 1990s opening theme song is not one of Johnson's compositions. Guide Live, the entertainment website from the Dallas Morning News, reports that Johnson's music production business had scored 67 episodes of the ultimate uncut special edition of Dragon Ball Z. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. You're tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. You've heard of probiotics, right? They're the live microorganisms that live in your gut mm, and in foods like yogurt and dietary supplements. Well, in recent years, they've been touted as beneficial to health, especially to ease digestive disorders. But it turns out that probiotics, these so-called good bacteria, may actually not be so good for all people in all cases. In today's Spotlight on Health, we're focusing on this new finding published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Wu Jung Shin helped lead this research. She is a biomedical engineering PhD candidate at UT Austin's Cockerell School of Engineering. Wu Jung, thanks so much for stopping by the Texas Standard Studios. Yeah, no problem. One interesting thing about your research, how it was done, uh, you used organ-on-a-chip technology. What is that? Right. Uh, so that is basically a cutting-edge technology that people try to recapitulate um, the human organ mm-hmm. in a tiny, like, memory stick-sized uh, chip. And we try to uh, simplify the complicated human system in a tiny, small chip. So like an electronic chip? Is that what it is or um, no? So I, I actually brought it, oh, but I can't can I, actually... <laughs> can yeah, I see? Sure. I won't touch it if, you, if I'm not supposed to. Yeah. 
That is fascinating. So what you're showing me here looks like a little crystal, almost like a sugar cube. Right. So it's transparent, basically. Mm -hmm. So we can, like, real-time imaging is possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, because this is small, um, it's, like, cost-effective because we don't have to use a lot of uh, cell, medium, something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. what, is, what is that inside? It looked like a little black, sort of like a thread or something. What is that? So it is basically microchannels. So we can culture human cells inside, mm -hmm. and we can um, basically uh, more closely mimic human microenvironment. I see. Yeah. So you can put something into that little right. plastic uh, block, right, basically. Right, right. And then you can test out whether this variable is having the sort of effect you expect or not. Right. Exactly. That's really interesting. So why did you decide to study probiotics? I have to, I have to ask you about that. So our gastrointestinal tract is basically open, like mouth, from mm -hmm. mouth to anus. Right. Um, so the system itself is basically always exposed to the outer matter, right? Mm -hmm. Like environmental matters. Um, and in our gut, there are a lot of uh, microorganisms, something like bacterial cells. Right. But there is a intestinal epithelial layer, which physically segregates the outer matter from our body. Okay. So uh, probiotics are often thought as a good, like, bacterias or nutrient-like supplements. Sure, you see them in the advertisements. Right, right. But in case, like, intact epithelial layer was severely, like, disrupted. Uh -huh. So it's not the case for the healthy human, but in, just in case uh, your gut is severely, um, like, injured, okay. probiotics can uh, invade and go to the other side of the intestinal epithelium and uh, react with other human cell types like immune cells. And then they ultimately cause the inflammatory situation. I see. So, yeah. so in fact, if, if you do have this probiotic in someone's, say, injured gut, or right. if you don't know that mm -hmm. there's some kind of, say, perforation or some kind of tear or some kind of injury... Mm -hmm. That could affect your um, uh, your ability to ward off disease, for example. Yeah, but I think there should be um, more studies conducted. So I think people always should like, consult with their doctors first. So what what uh, what is next for you? Because obviously this yeah. is this is a pretty big uh, uh, finding that you've made here. Mm -hmm. What happens for you next? Um, so in my current study, uh, I mean the published study, I use like immortalized cell line for culturing the human cells inside this micro device. And immortalized. Yeah, immortalized. So, mm -hmm. so it cannot reflect individuals like genetic or environmental like mm, factors. Differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I'm trying to use precision medicine perspective, like patient specific like pre prescription, something like that. Right. So I am trying to get a uh, patient sample and transfer patient cells inside my microfluidic device and culture them to constitute patient's own microenvironment in the tiny device. And then uh, maybe I can play with it. Um, maybe I can test a specific drug to see if that drug is like feasible or causes any like side effects, something like that, specifically to mm -hmm. that patient. So that, that is one of my directions. Wu Jung Shin is a PhD candidate at UT Austin's Cockerell School of Engineering. She's just co-authored research about the effectiveness of probiotics. 
Lu Zhang, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU, lead on. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Perhaps you've heard of our project, From Heel to Toe. We're trying to capture the stories of Texans through a common theme, our boots. Sometimes they're a gift, or a gift to oneself. Today, we hear from a mother, originally from China, whose family was showered with Texas-themed presents, including a tiny pair of special somethings, to welcome a new native Texan. My name, uh, Rachel uh, Chang. My last name is very rare in China. We don't have a lot of C-H-A-N-G in China. I grew up in China in like a city environment. So city-wise, you have tall buildings and you live in apartments and you play between the buildings with a lot of other kids. And the parents will yell from the balcony and <laughs> say like, it's dinner time. So I think that was the one-child policy thing back then. So I, would, I end up being the only child and actually meeting my husband uh, and seeing how he is with his two siblings make me decide that I, I want more. I want more this one because I love that. When Yuran was born, uh, our neighbor's girl knocked at the door and they sent their cookies. And we were so surprised. It was pink sugar cookies with Texas uh, shape and her name there as well, like Y-U-R-A-N, is very special. Uh, Boots-wise, after I moved to uh, Texas, I realized how different and how special this Boots symbolic uh, idea is for like all Texas. Um, you see people wear them all year long, whatever the weather, uh, regardless the temperature or the season. So it's very different. I actually didn't think about for her yet, but my precious friend, I remember we were talking about something very Texas. And uh, I was like, very Texas, what that would be. And when I received the present, and I remember I unwrapped it over there at the table, and I was like, Oh, I got it now. It's very, very Texas. It's very, very cute. Texas is the second place I live in the United States. The first one is the Bay Area. But surprisingly, this is very similar to the city we lived in in China. Like Austin, we have the river, we have the mountain, and we have the city like around it. You don't have it all around the world that you have like a big successful tax center city that have all of that as well. It's very beautiful. And we feel like this is home. She will always have Austin, Texas on her birth certificate. That's kind of like a stamp in a nice way on, on her, like the paper of her life. That's what, that was the first stamp. And she will always remember that and we will always remember that. 
I think I want her to carry along the Texas spirit. You know, the cowgirl spirit. You know, strong will, independent, happy. Rachel Chung and Baby Uran live in the Texas capital city. Young or old, tell us about your boots. Email us at TexasStandard at KUT.org and make sure to put boots in the subject line. It was 1968, amid conflict in the streets of many American cities over civil rights, conflicts largely framed in the newspapers as the struggle for equality among African Americans. There were in San Antonio hearings, hearings to explore the problems faced by Mexican Americans throughout the American Southwest. Their schools, too, were subpar, and they suffered abuse by law enforcement. Texas Public Radio's Norma Martinez says an upcoming conference marking the 50th anniversary of those hearings are as much a look at the past as the future, too. Rosie Castro is a political and social justice activist. She's probably best known for being the mother of Joaquin Castro, a U.S. congressman, and Julian Castro, the former San Antonio mayor and former secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. She attended the 1968 hearings as a student at San Antonio's Our Lady of the Lake University. Injustices facing the Mexican-American community were well known to her. You know, when I graduated from high school in 65, over 80% of Mexican-American students were dropping out. The college-going rate at the time was 4% for all Latinos. There was a belief that Mexican-Americans didn't need an education. They were destined to be laborers, not office workers or executives. There were still parts of San Antonio where the books were old, the teachers, there were no Latino teachers. People that were elected to office did not want to hear that. They wanted to go along with, oh, you know, everything's hunky-dory. We do right by our Mexicans. Uh, And that was not the case. So in 1968, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights held six days of hearings in San Antonio to examine these issues. Richard Avena also attended those hearings. He's the former Southwest Regional Director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. From my experience having lived in Washington and working for the government, a lot of people just couldn't accept that Mexican Americans were being discriminated against because we were just going through the black civil rights movement. What was happening in Alabama, Birmingham, Mississippi, the killings of these freedom riders. And a lot of people would tell me, said, you know, you Mexicans just don't have it as bad. Well, maybe that's what people saw, but it's because they didn't understand. Avena says in the 50 years since the hearings, lots of progress has been made. But for every step forward, there are two steps back. He points to the zero-tolerance immigration policy implemented by the Trump administration. We had to close the border because they said there were so many of them, we couldn't take care of them. So they were, they were sleeping with their parents on the bridge. And that hit me so strong. I, just could, I, I was very, very upset at that. I just can't get over that. Because you know what? Every one of those babies had one thing in common. They were all brown. 
Rosie Castro adds that though Latinos are seeking greater representation in higher office, efforts are still being made to keep voters away from the polls. You've got redistricting, voter purges that go on, every manner of figuring out how to put a stop to Latino and people of color registering and voting. A conference November 15th through the 17th at San Antonio's Our Lady of the Lake University will revisit some of the issues touched upon by the Civil Rights Commission 50 years ago. And it'll tackle some new ones, including immigration and LGBTQ rights. Castro and Avena hope the conference will not only build on the discussions of 1968, but remind all Americans that the civil rights movement never ended in the 1960s. The fight still goes on today, every day. They understand that the more things change, the more they stay the same. But they also understand that to keep the ground they've won, every new generation of Americans has to learn how to protect that ground. I'm Norma Martinez for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, just re-elected in the midterms, boasted to voters that he shut down the world's largest human trafficking marketplace. Question here. Did Mr. Paxton do all of that? Here to dig in, Gardner Selby on behalf of the nonpartisan fact-checking PolitiFact Texas Project based at the Austin American Statesman. Uh, Good to see you again, sir. Good day. Uh, So how did uh, Attorney General Paxton's claim first come to light? I'm guessing this had to do with campaign season. You got it right. There was a TV ad from Paxton's campaign that mostly criticized his challenger on the Democratic side, Justin Nelson. That ad closed with the narrator suggesting Paxton sports an accomplishment of global significance. Mm, Let's listen. Attorney General Ken Paxton. He shut down the world's largest human trafficking marketplace. Well, that's a rather dramatic accomplishment. And uh, what about the facts here behind the statement? This April, this year, the U.S. Justice Department seized and shut down Dallas-based Backpage.com. That's a classified ads website that had flourished greatly for years by posting ads focused on sex. I remember this story, and we're talking about basically adult advertisements, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So uh, did the site, though actually amount to the planet's largest human trafficking marketplace, as that ad just said. Well, Paxton and his campaign did not factually back up that characterization when we inquired, nor did we find evidence to support it. Now, meantime, experts told us that that is not so. And besides, such a determination, who's number one Mm -hmm. in that awful category, so to speak, that would be difficult to measure. Why would that be so difficult to measure? I'll just offer one speculation that, that a person threw our way. An online enterprise devoted to trafficking wouldn't be easily accessed to begin with. It would most likely be part of what's called the dark web, as in sites that are not visible 
to uh, to search engines. Well, that's interesting. Uh, uh, but what about Paxton's role here in shutting down Backpage.com? Did he did he have one? He had a role. By all accounts, the Texas Attorney General's office helped federal lawyers shut down the site. Paxton even said in another ad during the campaign season that he helped shut that down. So just just to be clear, uh, Texas teamed up with the feds, right? That would be the end of the story, it seems, in a sense. Almost. Uh, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, or outgoing. Attorney General then, right. uh, credited several agencies with pitching in. This is from the press release issued back in April. The effort to seize Backpage was led by the Justice Department's Child Exploitation and Obscenity Section mm-hmm. and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Arizona. Take a breath. With significant support from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California. Take a breath. The Office of the California Attorney General. One more breath. And the Office of the Texas Attorney General. Anything else relevant here as you were looking at it? Paxson's team did point out to us that just after Backpage.com was seized and shut down by the feds, Backpage's CEO signed a plea bargain agreement Uh sought by state lawyers in an Oasis County court. That's Hmm. here in Texas, of course. The CEO agreed there to ensure that Backpage's websites all over the world were no longer operating. Well, there's a Texas nexus right there. Uh, Upshot, how did Paxton's declaration fare once you ran it through the PolitiFact Texas Truth O meter? Editors deliberated this to a rating of... Mostly false. Now that means there's a claim. Uh, the claim has an element of truth, right? But it's otherwise inaccurate. Uh, the facts are: Paxson helped shut down that site. Right. It profited from adult sex ads, but it has not been shown to be the world's largest human trafficking marketplace. Mostly false. That's the verdict on Ken Paxton's claim during campaign season that he shut down the world's largest human trafficking marketplace. That's according to Politifact Texas Gardner. Thanks again. Good to see you. Good to be here. And we hope to see you next week. You bet. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Let's find out what Texans are talking about on this Thursday. Social media editor Wells Dunbar joins us once again in the studio. Hello there, sir. Hello, David. Well, here's the big story on the national front. Attorney Jeff General Jeff Sessions stepped down as AG Wednesday after brutal, sustained criticism from the president. I think we all knew that this one was coming eventually. Yeah, we did, but boy, it seemed to overshadow everything on the day right after midterms. Yeah, so. and you have to ask whether or not that was by design or not. Uh, other, you know, yeah, the White House uh, masters it sort of uh, driving the conversation in the uh, political media. The big question seems to be here, what does this mean for oversight of the Robert Mueller investigation mm-hmm. into uh, potential meddling in the 2018 election, the Trump connect- uh, 2016 election there, yeah, right, <laughs> and uh, the Trump admis- administration's connections, if any. And on Facebook, Dan Hummel says Trump was just waiting until after the midterms to fire Sessions. However, I think that the Mueller investigation is too far along now to be stopped I think they have all the information they need at this point with the numerous plea deals of people already charged in connection and the months to investigate all manner of things connected to this yeah, case. I've heard a lot of uh, talk about how the FBI is already uh, securing a lot of the evidence nonetheless, yeah. just to make sure that if if in the eventuality something does happen with the Mueller investigation, there's been an effort to preserve uh, whatever evidence uh, is necessary. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a, a question that is on everyone's minds out there, judging by what we're seeing, Michael Beauclair, he says that the first step, he says that this firing was the first step to stopping the investigation. He says, I think that Trump believes the guy will do it for him without direction, stopping the investigation. We have to wait and see if he is the lap dog Trump assumes he is, him being Matthew Whitaker. Uh, again, some tweets, tweets about 
about this guy, Jamie Gump, a listener. He says uh, he notes that Matthew Whitaker was Sessions' chief of staff. Right. He says appointing a chief of staff as the acting attorney general is like hiring the secretary to be the CEO. And meanwhile, Cohen has an interesting tweet here. I can, I, I'm on board with this, and it speaks to a lot of things. Not just this uh, one instance, but kind of the news generally in 2018. Okay. It's going to be interesting to see what happens between now and January. I'm tired of things being interesting. <laughs> things are <laughs> incredibly interesting, interesting out there is one way to put it uh-huh. yeah definitely yeah uh you know i've been uh, intrigued i don't know whether you read this you know mm-hmm. manny fernandez our friend over at the uh, new york times oh, yeah. based in houston did an interesting takeout uh in the paper about uh you know what the takeaways might be from the Cruz O'Rourke race and what we saw here in Texas yeah. over the past couple of days. I want to bounce these off, listener, if you don't mind. Sure, I mean, yeah, yes, let's hey. hear it, man. Okay, so Manny says, number one, the new two-party Texas. That's that's his first takeaway. Uh, number two, the stunner in Tarrant County. Tarrant County, uh, long seen as a uh, uh, red exception to uh, blue rule that, you know, the cities were yeah. tend to be blue. Uh, Tarrant County sort of stood out. Well, it st- tended to go Big news out of there. Yeah, we yeah. heard from, yeah, uh, from two North Texas politicians earlier in the show. Manny's uh, third takeaway from the midterms in Texas, Ted Cruz 3.0. What he's basically saying is uh, that Ted Cruz uh, uh, seemed to sort of uh, be willing to embrace Trump and his attack dog brand. That's so, not his margin of victory? Uh, no, I don't think that's uh, what he was referring to. Oh, that's okay, a gotcha. funny line. Uh, <laughs> number four, according to Manny, a political culture transformed. He points specifically to Beto O'Rourke uh, jamming with Willie Nelson, steering his uh, Toyota pickup truck, San Antonio built, <laughs> yeah. through uh, rural Texas and, uh, you know, uh, uh, air drumming post-debate at uh, a drive through lane at Whataburger, that sort of thing. So Yeah, different heck of a race, you know, and it's like Texas. I've seen a lot of people asking whether or not this is a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing with the candidate that O'Rourke was or whether or not those events well, can be replicated in 2020. Which brings us to 2020. Uh, some are saying since John Cornyn, the state's Republican senior senator, is yes. up for re-election, who knows? Will he face a challenge from Mr. O'Rourke? We shall see. What do you think, Texas? Reach out to us, won't you? At Texas Standard or join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is looking for you, and we're looking for you to join us once again on the big broadcast tomorrow. Till then, I'm David Brown wishing you a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. R.I. Public Radio International.